1 Corinthians 15 is where I'm preaching today. One more time, I want to go to this passage of Scripture that we've been in a study of over the last several weeks, going all the way back to Easter Sunday morning. You know, I have read somewhere, and this is a sort of an illustration, but there's a preacher of the old school who speaks as boldly as ever. And he's not popular, even though the whole world is his parish. This preacher travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language known to man. He visits the poor. He calls upon the rich. He preaches to people of every religion and of no religion. And the subject of his sermon is always the same. He's an eloquent preacher, often stirring emotions and feelings that no other preacher could, bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments, none are able to refute. Neither is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. And his name, death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday, each one of us will be the subject of his sermon. In other words, death is the universal experience of humanity faced by everyone, escaped by no one. It was Bishop J.C. Ryle who said that death is the mighty leveler. He spares no one. He will not tarry until you are ready. He will not be kept out by moats, doors, bars, and bolts. Kind of reminds me of an epitaph that I heard about on a grave marker somewhere. The inscription on this grave marker simply said, Remember, man, as you go by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so shall you be. Prepare yourself to follow me. Now, if I read that, I would have been tempted to reply, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. But the subject of death, the subject of dying, this is, this is often a subject that we, we try to avoid, we don't want to think about. The world around us offers no legitimate solutions to death. And even the world's leading philosophers and thinkers are puzzled by death and have no explanations. It was Sigmund Freud who said that finally there is the painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has been found nor probably ever will be. You know, Freud never read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, evidently. Because here, the solution to death, the answer to death, the victory over death is clearly outlined in these verses that the Apostle Paul penned to the Corinthian church. And so you're there in your Bible once more, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The subject of this chapter is resurrection. And the 58 verses of this chapter 
are the most extensive uh, treatment on the doctrine of resurrection that we find anywhere in the pages of God's Word. And the Apostle Paul has opened up in this chapter the first several verses by reminding the Corinthian church that our resurrection is a resurrection gospel. Our gospel would be no gospel. It wouldn't be good news if the news were simply that Christ died and was buried. But the gospel is good news because it is the news that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, but he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so because we have a resurrection gospel, this means that we live with resurrection hope. And Paul begins to make that point long about verse number 12. And he creates this hypothetical situation in which he imagines, what if there were no resurrection? There were some in the Corinthian church who had bought into Greek philosophy that denied bodily resurrection. And Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then what we preach is empty. we're, We're preaching in vain. Your faith is in vain. And we would be of all people on earth the most to be pitied. But then in verse 20, he says, Christ is raised from the dead. And as such, he's become the first fruits of them which are asleep. So that means that we have resurrection guarantee. And the resurrection of the believer is guaranteed because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus himself. This leads to some resurrection incentives. Paul says that there's a very practical result that the truth of the resurrection has in our lives as Christian men and women. It's this truth of the resurrection that ought to lead us to lay down our life sacrificially in service to King Jesus and for the sake of the mission of God in the world. We don't fear those who can kill the body but can't touch the soul. We don't fear the circumstances of life because our hope in Christ transcends the circumstances of this life and ultimately transcends the grave. And then the Apostle Paul in verse 35, he presupposes a couple of questions and the questions that are raised are these. How exactly are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And then beginning in verse 35, going through verse 49, the Apostle Paul explains the nature of the resurrection body that we're going to one day receive. Uh, When the dead in Christ are raised, what kind of body will they be given? Uh, He explains the differences between these natural bodies versus the supernatural bodies that will be given to us in the resurrection. And so now we come to verse number 50, and through the end of the chapter, I want to speak from this subject this morning, resurrection victory, because the Apostle Paul ends on this high note of victory that belongs to the believer because victory has been secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read beginning with verse 50. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And then he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And someone said that'd be a really good Bible verse to etch on the walls of our nurseries up here on the the D-wing. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So notice there in these verses that at least three times Paul uses the word victory. And he's explaining for us by way of bringing this subject of resurrection to a close that no matter the circumstances of life, Death has been overwhelmed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as those who trust in Christ, we're safe in Christ, we too are victorious. And so I want to speak from that subject then this morning, resurrection victory. Now in these verses, there are at least three things that I want to point out to you. Notice number one, there's a transformation that we're waiting for. The Apostle Paul begins by describing this transformation that we as believers are waiting for. He says, I tell you, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. And then he goes on to describe this process of change that's going to take place at some point in the future for the believer. So again, in the preceding passage, the apostle has been explaining the nature of the resurrection body that believers will receive. Uh, He says in verse 49 that just as we have borne the image of Adam, the man of dust, so also will we bear the image of Christ, the man of heaven. And so that means that believers undergo a transformation or a change, and that word change is used at least twice used in verses 51 and 52. And uh, the apostle uses a Greek word that means to be made different. Uh, It's this idea of exchanging one thing for another. It's this process of transformation. So there's a transformation then that all of us as believers are waiting for. And someone says, well, why is transformation necessary? Well, verse 50, notice the reason for this change is mentioned. Paul says, I tell you this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why is it that we undergo a physical change? Uh, Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's referring to the current makeup of our physical condition in these bodies that are time-bound, they're fitted for earth, and therefore they're subject to corruption because we live in a fallen state of existence. And so when Paul is referring to flesh and blood here in verse number 50, uh, he's referring to that which is perishable. He's not saying that the resurrection body that we're going to be given one day in the future will not be physical. We know that it will be physical. However, it will not be natural. It will be supernatural. And again, that's what he's described going all the way back up to verse number 42. 
So how will our future resurrection body be different than our body now? Well, if you go back up through verse 42, pay close attention to what he said about the body as it is now compared to what it will be when resurrected. And notice the words that he uses to describe the body that we have now. Uh, He says in verse 42 that this current body that we have is perishable. Again, that means that it has a shelf life. Our current bodies are in this process of wearing out, whether it involves our eyes, which tend to dim over time, our ears and our senses, which tend to dull over time and deafen over time. Slowly but surely, these bodies wear down and deteriorate until the time comes when they completely shut down in death. And the reason for that is because they're perishable bodies. Bodies that are subject to corruption brought on by a fallen existence. You remember what God said to Adam after Adam sinned against God. God told Adam, listen, I took you from the dust. To dust you're going to return. And and that describes this process of deterioration and breakdown and eventual death as far as these current bodies are concerned. And then in verse 43, another word that he uses to describe these bodies that we have now, it's the word dishonor, a word that indicates disgrace. Chuck Swindoll has said that Paul more than likely had in mind the condition of the body after its death. That is, when it's sown or buried, it's done so with dishonor, hidden away in the earth or in a tomb because of the stench of death and the decay that follows. So there comes a point in time when in our life, these bodies age to such a degree, we're dependent upon other people for care. You think about this, when we're young, we take care of our children. When we get old, our children take care of us. And so and so it goes. It's the course of life. Another word that's used to describe these bodies that we have now, it's the word weakness, back up in verse 43. Again, weakness means frail. It describes the fragile nature of our health. The fact that we're prone to weakness, we're prone to illness, we're prone to sickness and disease. That word weakness describes the absence of strength to understand something, to do something, to bear up under stress. Why is that? It's because of the weakness of these bodies that we have. We tend to pride ourselves on our strength. Man likes to think that he's strong. William Barclay said that it's fashionable to talk about man's power, but the really remarkable thing is man's weakness. He says just the absence of air or the absence of water can kill him. We're limited in this life so often because of the necessary limitations of the body. Time and time again, our physical constitution says to our visions, our dreams, and our plans, this far and no farther. And we're often frustrated because we are what we are. William Barclay goes on to say that in the life to come, all of those limitations will be gone. Another word that's used there in verse 44, it's the word natural. These current bodies are natural compared to the supernatural and spiritual nature of the resurrection body. 
And again, Paul's not saying that the resurrection body isn't physical. We know that it is. There's evidence with the resurrection body, the glorified body that Jesus had as he came out of the tomb on Easter morning. Uh, he, he was not a ghost. He was not an apparition. He was not simply a spirit. And so the body of the Lord Jesus serves as a pattern of what the believer's future resurrection body is going to be like. So the fact that it's spiritual, someone says, well, the the resurrection body is spiritual. What does that mean when Paul says that there? To have a spiritual body is to possess a body controlled or directed by God's spirit. One person has said it this way, the idea behind that word spiritual is that of control, not substance or matter. So the current body we have is natural. The resurrection body is spiritual, perfectly under the control and the direction of the Holy Spirit of God. Not one hint of sin, not one stain of sin will be characteristically true of the resurrection body. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying there. Verse 47, he says this current body is earthly. It's another word that he uses to describe this body that we have now. As those who are naturally born, we bear the same physical earthly nature as Adam. When Adam sinned, God said the consequence of that sin was that he would return to the very dust from which he had been made. And so it goes with all who live and die in Adam. But for those who are in Christ... When we are resurrected, we will bear the same spiritual and heavenly nature as the Lord Jesus himself. Now the good news is, spiritually, I have already been raised with Christ. And Paul says in the book of Colossians that we've already been seated in heavenly places with Christ, which means that our salvation in Christ is sure and it's secure. Which means when you got saved, you came alive. The Spirit of God came to take up residence within you and you're living, you're alive. You've been raised with Christ and yet there still is this future aspect of salvation that we're waiting for and it's the resurrection of the body. Glorification as it's described in the eighth chapter of Romans. So again, all of this is reason for this change that Paul is describing in these verses. There has to be a change take place for us to inhabit eternity and to live with Christ for eternity. That which is perishable has got to put on that which is imperishable. That which is mortal has got to put on that which is immortal. So that's the reason. Now, notice something else. What about the revelation of this change? Verse 51, Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. He's saying, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Now, here's the secret. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We know that the dead in Christ, they're going to rise. They're going to be the first to receive their resurrection bodies. When is it? When does that happen? Go back to verse 23. Here's the order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. When Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise. They will be the first to receive their resurrection bodies. 
But then this brings up a question, what about those who are living when Jesus returns? There will be a generation of believers who are alive at the second coming of Christ. And so if the second coming were to happen and you were alive when Christ comes, what happens then? Are we going to be left behind? Listen to this. Paul goes on to explain this next. He says that it's mystery. That word mystery is a very important word in the New Testament. It it describes something that was previously hidden but now has been revealed in the light of Christ. So when he says mystery, he's not saying that this is something that you and I can't understand, we can't know. He's saying, no, this is previously hidden to a generation of believers in the past, but now in the light of Christ, this has been plainly revealed. And so whenever that term mystery is used in the New Testament, it always refers to a truth that had been previously hidden in the Old Testament, but now is revealed in Christ. So mystery truth. This is something that the saints in the Old Testament didn't see because it hadn't been made plain to them. Now, I've heard it explained this way. When you you think about how God has revealed truth, first of all, there are some things that God reveals to no one. For example, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are certain things that happen that God allows to happen in my life, your life, we're not given an explanation for. And sometimes we can say, God, I don't know why you've not let me know why this has happened the way that it's happened. Let me tell you, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There's some things known only to Him. And because He is God, He is under no obligation to explain Himself to me or you right? But then, listen to this, secondly, there are some things that God reveals to everyone. You say, what do you mean? Well, this is Paul's point in Romans chapter 1 when he describes how all of humanity is without excuse when it comes to the knowledge of God. He says what God, what can be known about God is plain to humanity because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes his eternal power, his divine nature, all of this has been, been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So creation itself is evidence of the creator. And this means that all of humanity is without excuse when it comes to the knowledge of God. So there's some things that God's revealed to everyone. And then... There are some things that God reveals to his people. Those who call upon Christ in faith. Those who know Christ through faith. Again, to go back to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But listen to this. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So that we may do all the words of the law. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So there are some things that God reveals only to those who are his children, those who are believers, those who've come to faith in Jesus Christ. But then, 
Fourthly, uh, there are some things that God has hidden for a time, but they're now revealed in the light of Christ. And that's what, where this truth of, of, of rapture and this mystery truth of those who are alive when Christ returns, how they're going to be instantaneously, gloriously changed, this was mystery truth. It had not been revealed to God's people in the past, but now in light of Christ and what Christ has accomplished, Paul says this has now been revealed. So the rapture. Which, by the way, another one of these mystery truths in the Bible that was concealed in the past but's now revealed in the light of Christ was the mystery of the church itself. The fact that the church is made up of both Jew and Gentile, how both Jew and Gentile have been brought into one body in Jesus Christ. So that now, in the body of Christ, listen to me, there are no ethnic distinctions that really matter. Are you listening to me? That regardless of your ethnic background, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of your native language, you've been brought into this body of Christ, the church, which means we're brother and sister, we're the family of God, and, and, and the Bible says that this was mystery truth something that was hidden in the past, but something that's now been revealed in the light of Christ. That's what the truth of rapture is. Mystery truth. Hidden, concealed in the past, but now revealed in the light of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, the generation who's alive when Christ returns, there's going to be a generation that will not experience physical death. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You see, you've got to be changed to go to heaven. You can't go there the way that you currently are. We will be transformed. And the generation of believers who are alive when Jesus comes again will be miraculously changed. The dead in Christ will be the first to receive their resurrection bodies, and then we will follow like suit. And it will be instantaneously. How will it happen? It'll happen in a moment, verse 52, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. What is that trumpet? It's the trumpet signaling the return of the Lord. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul uh, explains this with a little bit more light. He says, this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. And the word that he uses there in that text, translated caught up, it's the Greek word harpazo which means to be seized and carried away by force. That's what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes again. The dead in Christ are going to rise and the generation of believers that are alive at the coming of the Lord are going to be carried away by force by the power of Christ himself, saved from the judgment, the coming judgment that's coming upon a world of unbelief. And so someone says, well, the rapture, I don't see that word rapture ever used in the New Testament. 
Well, when the New Testament was translated into Latin, the same word used to translate this verb, harpazo, the Latin word was raptura, which is the word we get the word rapture from. Going right here to this text. So the rapture is this event associated with the coming of Jesus when he will receive believers unto himself at his return. And personally, I'm of the conviction that this is the next thing on God's prophetic calendar. That as the world around us seems to be spinning further and further into chaos and unbelief, as we see lawlessness on the increase, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, listen, rapture is the next thing on God's prophetic calendar. I believe that the scripture teaches that the rapture will indeed happen prior to the final tribulation. Now, I know there are a lot of believers who tend to see things somewhat differently, but I've always said it, whenever the trumpet blows and the rapture happens before the tribulation starts, I'm going to look over at those believers and say, I told y'all so, okay? Nana-nana-boo-boo, right? But the point is, this rapture event that's described in Scripture, it's going to be sudden, it's going to be unannounced, but it's going to be spectacular as there's a generation of believers who are alive at the coming of Jesus who will not experience physical death, but will be instantaneously, supernaturally, gloriously changed. Now again, death is inescapable. But I'm longing for rapture. It gets hard when we go to heaven one by one. When those that we love get there before we do. And we grieve over the loss of those that we love. And as a church, we grieve over the loss of brothers and sisters. And we have funeral services for those that we love. I'll be honest, I long for the coming of Jesus. I just want us all to be able to go together. That's what it's going to be when Christ comes again. Well, what will the result of this change be? If that's the revelation of it, what will the result of this change be? Verse 53, the perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. That's the result. You go back through verse 42 and you look at the words that Paul uses to describe the resurrection body, how it's different from the natural body. And it's going to be wonderful. All weakness will be vanquished and we will live in a perfect, permanent existence. What has been mortal will have put on immortality and we will be fit for eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's the transformation that we're looking for. Now notice the second thing, and I've got to hurry, but there's a triumph that we're grateful for. Paul sort of concludes this this chapter on the resurrection with an anthem of praise and worship. Believers are triumphant, and that triumph, we've not secured that victory ourselves through our own moral living, through our own morality, through our own behavior. No, the victory that's ours is given through the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand in his victory. His righteousness has been credited to us as believers. That's the gospel. It's all about grace. And so this this high note here, victory, as Paul's dealing with the subject of death and dying, how is it that believers can approach this subject? We approach this subject with this word, victory. 
Yes, death is sure, physical death is sure, but resurrection is all about victory that has been won through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says when it's all said and done, death will be swallowed up in victory. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he didn't just take a bite out of death. No, he has devoured death entirely. Death has been swallowed up in the victory of the Lord Jesus. Someone who understood this was Winston Churchill. I read something I thought was so amazing. Winston Churchill, uh, when he planned his own funeral, I think he died in 1968. But Churchill, here's what he wanted to happen at his funeral. After there was a prayer by the Archbishop of Canterbury, after they sang God Save the Queen, there was a trumpet player who was perched in the highest reaches of the dome in St. Paul's Cathedral, and that trumpet player played taps. But as the last note of taps was played, high in an adjacent gallery in that cathedral, there was another trumpet player who was positioned to play reveille. Y'all know what reveille is, don't you? It's the trumpet blast of the soldier getting him out of bed early in the morning. That's what Churchill believed. He believed in resurrection. Yes, Taps may be played at my funeral in this life. Yes, there may come a time when I experience physical death that the Lord Jesus Christ tarries his coming. Oh, but listen, it's going to be reveille for the believer in Jesus Christ because this is the hope that only Jesus Christ can provide through his victory. <laughs> wow. That's why when we bury our loved ones, as hard a process as that is to go through and as much as we grieve, Paul says, we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. That's why he can sort of taunt death in this passage. Verse 55, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He's going back to the prophet Isaiah, and he's quoting from Isaiah chapter number 25, I believe that it is. Where is your sting, death? I don't know a whole lot about bees, But I have read somewhere along the way that honeybees may be the only type of bee. I don't know, other bees may be like this. But when they sting you, they bury their stinger in your skin and they fly away. But they only have about five minutes to live because when they are severed from their stinger, they they die. You know what happened when Jesus was crucified on Good Friday on the cross? Death buried its stinger in the body of our Lord. And briefly, briefly, perhaps just three days, maybe thought that it was the victor, but no, no. Death swallowed up in victory through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What's the sting of death? The sting of death is sin. That's what Paul says. There in verse 56, the power of sin is the law. What does that mean? It's not death itself so much that harms a person. Death is simply the end of physical existence. Sin is the sting. And more specifically, it's sin that has not been dealt with. 
Death has no real power over anyone unless there is sin that has not been dealt with. And the power of sin is the law of God that has been broken. The law of God, this represents the perfect standard of God's righteousness that shows us our sin. And the fact that we woefully come short. That's what sin means. The word means to miss the mark. It's not just you making a mistake. I hear a lot of people say, well, I made a mistake. No, sin is sin, mistake something else. Sin is sin, it's moral culpability before a holy and righteous God. And the Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. So in order for the sting of death to be removed, someone had to die the death that I deserve for my sin. And that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. Death buried its stinger in the body of the Lord Jesus. The scripture says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus Christ became my sin upon the cross. Jesus Christ died the death that Brandon Ware should have died. So that in Jesus Christ I could be made righteous forgiven folks that's the gospel and it's a glorious exchange that takes place when a person comes to faith in Jesus you want hope that transcends the grave the sting of death removed as far as your life is concerned let me tell you place your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone as your savior and this victory will be your victory let's stand for prayer this morning That last verse in verse 58, it just ends on such a practical note, if you think about it, in light of all that Paul said about the resurrection. The previous 57 verses, he uses this word, therefore, therefore. That means in light of everything that I have just told you about what Christ has done for you and how his victory is your victory. In light of that, he says, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So this resurrection truth is very practical because it motivates me that, listen, I can be steadfast in the midst of life's storms, immovable, when all around my soul gives way. He is my hope and my stay. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. No matter what you do, in Jesus' name, let me tell you, your life, when, you, when, when what you do, you do for the glory of God, it's going to count for something as far as eternity is concerned. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes that reality. Isn't that just a good word? Would you bow with me this morning? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, can I just urge you, right there where you are, in an attitude of repentance and faith, say, Lord Jesus, I confess my sin and my need for you. I believe that you died on the cross to save me. I believe that you are my risen Lord. I confess you as my Lord and Savior today. If you're online, right there where you are, pray with us this morning. Confess your sin. Cry out to the Lord Jesus. Believe that he died for you, that he rose again from the dead, and you will be saved. 
Our Father and our God, we're grateful for this wonderful truth of resurrection. My soul is so stirred, Lord, by all that is ours in Jesus Christ. This is good news. And Lord, it's news that a dying world needs to desperately hear. Where there's been so much talk of sickness and death and dying. Oh God, may we as your people move into the world with the compassion of Jesus, the love of God in our hearts. And share this hope of resurrection truth with a world that needs to hear it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.